0: If you're able also to turn to uh, Esther chapter 9 and 10, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 9 verse 20 and we'll read through to the very end of chapter 10 which is only short. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per—that that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should, not, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. The letters were sent all to the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might, and all the full account of the high honour of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. And they were not written, and are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all of his people. The word of the Lord. Be to God. And please be seated. Well, we have come to the very end of the book of Esther, and perhaps you're only just picking it up these last couple of weeks. What I would like to say as we uh, begin is reminding you of the question we asked as the letter began. And the question was this, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? That was really the opening question and in many ways a continuing question throughout the book of Esther. We've mentioned that there is no mention of God in the book of Esther. There is no word from God to his people in the book of Esther. And yet here we are having identified chapter after chapter the hand of God at work and the different lives of the different people in the different circumstances. And the reason we are able to draw those conclusions that God is at work is because of how things turn out for the welfare of his people. This should be especially encouraging for you who live in a nation, just like I did when I lived in Scotland, uh, when the nation seems to be going in the very opposite direction that you want it to go in, in a way that doesn't glorify God, but is going in ways that bring glory to shameful and sinful things, that God is one who is always at work in turning things around and we should never look at today and and work out that we're able to figure out where this is going to be tomorrow the book of esther teaches us that over and over and over again you cannot look at today and figure out what tomorrow will be this is the, the sheer encouragement that comes from a book like esther but what do you do when you feel that you are god's people in a land Uh, where God is not mentioned, at least he's not recorded in the book of Esther, and, and heaven, to put it this way, has gone silent on you. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And we saw, did we not, how Esther, in her way, made what she thought was the right decision at the right time in order to do the right thing on behalf of God's people. And God is constantly working through our decisions, God is constantly working through the decisions of both the king and Haman in different ways, which you will see in a moment, to bring about his purposes. And so what we must never do is come up with an equation that says that if God is silent, that therefore that equals his distance. That if God is silent, that if I, if I'm, if I don't believe uh, or I'm living a life where I feel that Jesus is distant, and the truth is, is that many Christians live their Christian life with a feeling of a distant Jesus. And I, I don't, and I understand why they feel that. I understand why it happens. I struggle to understand why it's not remedied very, very quickly in the lives of Christians, and why so many are almost content to live with a feeling of a distant Jesus. And so in the book of Esther, we get this tension of, well, where is God if there's no word from him? And where is God if we cannot ascribe to him particular acts? And the truth is we can when we know what God does and why God does what he does. So you must never equate, you must never arrive at the conclusion that if if you're feeling that that God is distant or your feeling that God is silent somehow equals to God being both silent and distant. It is not the case for God is always at work. He is providentially at work, meaning that he has a particular care for his particular people at all times, that God is particularly caring for you in ways that you perhaps cannot even begin to see or imagine until you come through whatever it is that you are going through. There is a certainty that you must have about God and a knowledge that you must have about God in many ways to be able to read the book of Esther and see that God is in every single page, that God is in every single event. Let me tell you a a story. John Brown was a minister in Scotland back in the 1700s. In fact, he lived 30 minutes away from where I lived. I lived in Edinburgh, and he lived in a place called Havington, which was about 30 minutes away. And he had a particular way with the people in his congregation. One lady in his congregation was very bold, and she was on her deathbed, and she was so full of the Lord. She was so strong in her faith. She was so convinced of who God was that John Brown, even on her deathbed, put her to the test in a very gentle pastoral way, but he said to her, but how do you know? How do you know your gods? How do you know you're saved? How do you know that as you lie here on your deathbed that you're going to spend eternity with God? How do you know? And she very gently in her last words, as it were, says, I know because God has told me. But then she added this, if it were not true, God would lose more than me. Because if it were not true, I would lose out on eternity. I would lose out on heaven. But God could no longer be God. If it were not true, God could no longer be God. If it were not true, God would lose more than I. And the point that she was making is that because she had understood who God was through his word, that she understood in her moment, in her circumstance, that if none of it was true, then God wasn't God. But it is true. And the reason the future is so certain is because God does not change. The reason we can read Esther with the hope that all of this will be turned around in the favor of God's people is because God does not change. And so God is absent from the book of Esther in reference only. Remember that God is absent from the book of Esther in reference only. He is not absent from the people, the time, the circumstances, the issues, or anything that they are dealing with. And so this is especially encouraging if you feel that somehow, what do I do when I don't know what to do? That God feels absent, but he is not absent. He may be absent in reference. But he is most definitely not absent in the reality of bringing all things around to his will and his way according to his good pleasure but here's the summary of where we have come these last two chapters of esther we have a tension that has to be resolved and while esther has been received well by the queen and their king and therefore she is saved and Mordecai has been given a position of power and prominence, and therefore he is safe. Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman means that no Jew is safe. All the Jews are now threatened with destruction because the law that was written cannot be overturned. And so how does God solve a problem like that? How does God solve a problem like that. Well, in the same way, we get used to the same thing in Romans 5 with justification, don't we? That in Christ Jesus, God justifies the unjust. That God is able to overcome, even though the laws are written and everything must be done according to what is stated, God is able to turn things around in wonderful ways. And so this is what we see throughout the book of Esther in chapters nine and 10, or nine in particular, that God doesn't reverse it as though the battle doesn't happen, but instead he gives victory over his enemies. He gives victory to his people over their enemies. In other words, God doesn't take away the problem. He enables his people to be able to overcome the issue that they face. He doesn't remove the offense. He rather allows them to be so defensive that they do not come to any harm. But even this has a history to it. In other words, if you heard the readings that were read out, especially the Deuteronomy one, we recognize that this has a long history behind what is happening here. Saul's failure to obey God, uh, Haman's then in the generational line of the Amalekites, Haman then casting lots in chapter three, verse seven to decide on what day the Jews are to be destroyed. And what we see here is the victory of God's people through battle, through conflict, not them escaping the battle all together. In other words, God is the one who will give rest to his people, but the way that He is going to do it is not by stopping the battle. From happening, but by bringing others to an end so that they can never cause trouble again in the future. We've said from the very beginning that past lead to places, and the past always catches up with the future, but it is done away with in Christ Jesus. It is done away with by God. Only, only God can undo the things that we have done. Only, gone, only God can rectify the disobedience of those who have gone Uh, before us. And yet what we have here is that God's people do seem to have learnt from their past. You'll notice that as you read through the text that they do not plunder the goods of their enemies. Chapter 9 verse 10. They're not going to take more than the victory. That God will give them the victory but they're not going to take any more than that. In other words they seem to have learnt from Saul's mistake, Saul's disobedience. And we see the same thing again in chapter 9, verse 16, that again, these people are recognizing their past. They are, at least by implication, are understanding what had gone before them that perhaps led to the day that they're in. And they are not going to make the same mistake again. In other words, now that they have been given rest from their enemies, they are not going to benefit by taking more. They're not going to plunder the goods. They are satisfied with what God has given them in the way that God has given it to them. And so the failure of soul, the disobedience of soul is not then repeated by God's people here today. They are not gonna plunder the goods of those that they defeat. And so perhaps the lesson has been learned. Perhaps their memory is good enough to remember that the past always catches up with the future. And so this is the day when we must do it God's way and understand God's blessing upon it so that we may have rest. In other words, it is always the case that when you decide to take things upon yourself or you decide to do it in a way contrary to the way that God has explicitly said you are to do it, you literally prolong that disobedience in some time into the future that it will eventually catch up with you and you will eventually have to deal with it. And this is why only in Christ Jesus do many of those things get dealt with, never to be repeated again. The most obvious one being that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Those past disobediences stop at the cross. God deals with it once and for all. But there is a lesson to be learned, right, in not repeating the failures of the past, in not repeating the sins of the past. The fact that we have to come and confess our sins over and over again, as I said earlier, is a sorrowful event, because it is a constant reminder that we're, we've not yet escaped the sinful repetitions that we fall into. And God is gracious that as it is we come and seek his forgiveness. Again, he reaches out and saves us from the enemy of sin, as it were. We have victory only in Christ, remember. And so the lesson here, in a very practical way, is that the future has to be protected. That's how the book finishes. That now God has done what he has, the future must be protected. And so you will read that Haman's descendants, verse 10, his sons must be brought to their own end. Why? Why must they be brought to their end? Because the son will avenge the father. The son will avenge the father and it will just continue. It will just continue and continue and continue. And so chapter nine, verse 10 is really the protection of the future, not just dealing with the past, but protecting the future. Remember these words from Deuteronomy that we heard read already. Remember what Amalek did to you, on the, way you on, on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you. How he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land of the Lord, your God is giving to you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. They did forget. God doesn't forget. God never forgets. God has never forgotten what Amalek did to God's people. It was never forgotten. Forgotten by God, but it was most definitely forgotten by His uh, people. In other words, think about how many times you have suffered the consequence of not remembering what you ought to have done. Has your wife ever said to you when you come home, Did you remember? And you go, I did not remember. Or you say to your child as you're about to discipline, do you not remember me saying to you this before? In other words, the the reason you're committing the same sin all over again is not because you haven't been instructed, but rather because you haven't remembered. And so there is a difference between an instruction and a reminder. You only need to be instructed once, but you need to be reminded over and over and over again one of the common sins that we commit is this sin of forgetfulness forgetting to remember and remember that to remember is a command of god to actually remember what god has spoken to us not just the memory verses to know where they are but to actually remember the meaning about what god has said well haman It follows in the same line of Amalek, a nation that is raised up over the Jews. Esther chapter nine then, is about how can we make sure that the past is not repeated again in the future. And if history doesn't repeat itself, as someone rightly said, it most definitely rhymes. It rhymes, there's a repetition here. It's not exactly the same because the people are different, the times are different, the circumstances are different. But in another sense, it's rhyming with the past. Because many failures do. You've not done the same thing again as you did in the past, but it's rhyming with the past. The sin that you commit today is not exactly the same sin as you committed last week, but there's a rhyming to it. In other words, this rhyming nature should tell us where the problem is at. Everything makes its way into the future, and now the future must be protected. And so the major theme, if not the major theme throughout the book of Esther, is that God is at work in ways that we cannot understand. A minor theme corresponding to that is that the past is always making its way into the future. And so Esther chapter 9 is very much about protecting the future. How do you protect the future from the things that you do not remember? Very difficult. Extremely difficult. It depends on you remembering. It depends on you learning from the past, learning from others, and protecting your future based on what has gone before you. Trusting only in God for all things. But what about the Feast of Purim then? How did that come about? Well, we're told that Haman in chapter three cast lots, per meaning lots, to decide on what day the Jews were to be destroyed. And I find this interesting because in the same way that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he can direct it wherever he chooses, we have seen over and over and over again how the king's heart has been directed in favor or to favor Esther and Mordecai. And in the very beginning, we saw, though strange as it may be, that God was even working through a drunk king and a disobedient wife to bring about the very will in the land that his people were. That is how God works. But in Proverbs 16, we read, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is, is that we are told that Haman is casting the lots, but the Lord is determining the outcome. Are we then to draw the conclusion that the Lord is determining the day on which the Jews are to be destroyed? No, of course not, but he does determine the day and he determines it in this way. Now, I don't want to speak too much about lots other than to say, or the casting of lots, other than to say that Haman doesn't get to determine the outcome, but neither does he get to determine the question. So I don't want to say too much, but let me just say this, that often when people ask about lots today, what they're trying to compute, what they're trying to uh, rationalize and get together is if, if God determines the outcome of the flip of the coin or the roll of the dice or the casting of the lot, does that mean that the question is then determined? Right? Because what tends to happen, and I did this as a chart, I can remember with a, with a 10p coin thinking, if I get three tails, then I'm gonna do this instead of that, right? And when I didn't like the answer, I went best out of five, right? <laughs> and that's what we do. We, when we, we, I, If I get three tails, I'm going to go here. If I get three heads, I'm not going to do it. And then because my heart was already moved to one direction, I just, up uh, three out of five. And then five out of ten, right? I, because I can change it. And what we learn in that is that God always determines the outcome, but you don't get to determine the question. You don't get to determine what the lot is actually going to signify and yes Haman cast lots and yes the lot landed on a particular day on which the Jews were to be destroyed but we are not to conclude from that that the casting of the lot the reason for the casting of the lot and the outcome therefore means it's fate accompli therefore the Jews will be destroyed on this day that's not what the proverb is teaching the proverb is simply teaching that the Lord God is in control of all things at all all times. Okay, all things at all times. And so Haman may have had a very set question and a very set purpose, but the Lord is already fulfilling his will through Mordecai and through Esther, and of course, even through Haman in the casting of the lots, that it would be a specific day. And so in 924, we read that the reason the name Purim is given is because Haman casted lots. And in that time, it was a time of feasting and gladness, of food, of giving to the poor. Chapter nine, verse 22. And again, if history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, remind you of anything? Can you think of another man who has risen to power, second only to the king, who then feeds the poor, feeds those who don't have any food? And again, God just has a wonderful way of bringing to the surface his plan and these repetitions over and over again to remind us, his people, that it is God who's in control of all things. It is God who is in control. It is his will being fulfilled through anybody that he so chooses. And so Mordecai, I'm not going to say that he is a type of Joseph. But at the same time, we get to see the beauty of history playing out and go, I've seen something like this before. I have seen God do something like this before. And as we keep saying in Sunday school, that God is known by what he does and that truth and experience have to be understood in a very particular way lest we are led by one direction by experience and another by truth because they don't always correspond. And so what we see over and over again is that God is known by what he does. That is how we get to know him. And so think as you think through this book of the amount of things that have turned around for the good of God's people. Think of the amount of things that have turned out good in the end for God's people. In the beginning, we learnt of 127 provinces for which the king ruled over. And by the end, now we understand which king we're talking about. The real king that rules over the 127 provinces is the Lord our God, not King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. And so the turnaround is as follows. In the very beginning of Esther, we are given one picture of a land with no mention of God or no mention of God's people. And we're just introduced to a feast. And in that feast, a king gets drunk and a wife disobeys her husband. And we would think nothing good can come of that. God's not there. But God was there. Because that led to Esther coming along. And that led to Mordecai coming along. And that led to Mordecai being raised to power. And that led to Esther being given the golden scepter. And that left or handed to her. And that led to one thing and another until it led to the main focus being on all of God's people and the 127 provinces being safe. In other words, there is a complete turnaround from beginning to end. And in the end, it's not the king who's feasting, it is the people of God. In the end, it's not the king who's been drawing attention to his 127 provinces, it's the people of God who live in the 127 provinces. When we compare the beginning of the book to the end of the book, we see that God is at work for the benefit of his people in the 127 provinces and we did not know they were there at the beginning. But God did. And so what we observe over and over again is the hand of God at work for the welfare of his people. Never forget that. And so let me close with this. God... Our Lord God knows not only what the future is, but works all things together in such a way that that future cannot be anything other than what he has determined it to be. And in the moment, God is working all things together at once, not one thing at a time, but all things together, all the time, at once to bring about his purposes. Esther is a reminder that if you are a person, one of God's people living in a land that is dominated by others, that you have nothing to fear. That if you are one of God's people in the 127 provinces and you are the minority, you are the majority because you belong to God. In other words, God is the one who brings about his outcomes. And those in the world do not get to determine your future. Those in the world who are anti-God do not get to determine the future of the church. And they do not get to determine your children's future. They do not get to determine anything. Because we are reminded over and over again throughout the book of Esther and throughout the whole scriptures that every event and every circumstance is able to be turned around by God. The the conviction, or rather the challenge, is that we don't see it until we get to celebrate it. Right? Isn't that true? In essence, we don't get to see it until we get to celebrate it. Until, Until we're on the other side and we look back why do you think the command is so strong to remember this to make sure these days are kept because israel's temptation is to be forgetful it is to it is to forget the type of things that god does and the moment you forget the type of things that god can do you don't expect god ever to do them again in the future because they're just out of sight out of mind and so your expectation of god diminishes quickly. God is known by what he does. And therefore, if you really want to know God and what God can do, you have to look at what he has done already, because your God does not change. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you first and foremost that your word is true and that with it you enlighten our mind with a view of changing our heart continually, that we may be forever desiring you in all things. And we would ask, Father God, that we would be encouraged that you are a table-turning God, that what something looks like today does not determine what it will look like tomorrow. And for that we thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.